Welcome to Open Minds Radio with Alejandro Rojas. Open Minds Radio is your UFO news authority, presenting evidence and the latest news regarding the UFO phenomenon. Here's your host, Alejandro Rojas. Hello and welcome to Open Minds Radio. I hope you are enjoying your Memorial Day. Hopefully you have the day off and you're out barbecuing and having fun. Because that's what we're doing. We're actually not in the office. This is not live. Instead, we pre-recorded, or actually this is an interview I recorded five, six years ago with Daryl Sims, the alien hunter. And uh, after spending a weekend together when we brought him out to Denver, uh, we sat down and I was able to get him to talk about some of the interesting stories he has accumulated over the years. I hope you enjoy the show. The first thing I would like to start with is just some general background. Well, my background um, in terms of uh, as an investigator, my background, I was in the military police for three years as a volunteer during the Vietnam War. Soon after that, the Central Intelligence Agency contacted me through me and a number of other people, about 60 of us. in the military police school, and we had no idea who they were. And long story short is we simply uh, ended up in the Central Intelligence Agency in a covert operations group for two years. So my background in investigating as a police officer for three years, two years as a as a <coughs> someone that was in the intelligence business, uh, and the fact I've been a private investigator and a process server, uh, licensed in the state of Texas, uh, all this uh, moves to, together toward uh, my area of investigations on physical evidence of those who allege human alien contact. And then when did you move on to hypnotherapy and in particular working with abductees? I've been uh, working in hypnotherapy about 15 years. Uh, I learned that uh, specifically not for the purpose of abductions, but specifically for the purpose of accelerated learning and things that I was very interested in doing. I ran uh, some sensory deprivation tanks uh, about 15 years ago uh, wet and dry tanks and uh, would train professionals who are concert pianists and concert guitarists and um, as an example the uh, Houston Classical Guitar Society paid me $2,000 for a presentation on how to for them to do play better and perform better uh, using some of our techniques which I use the worst and the very best of their people the president and one of their lowest members and uh, the results were startling to all those who listened. And then was there a particular moment or, or something that, an event perhaps that drove you to move and uh, delve so deeply into the, to the abductee field? Actually, that, that there was. Uh, <clears throat> my abduction started in 1952 uh, when I was uh, four years old, and they ended violently uh, 13 years later in 1965. As far as I was concerned, that was it, and everything was over. Traumas are great, you know. It's over, you know. It's amazing. I had no idea what what this stuff was all about. Just knew that it was real and it was happening to me. And I said, kept a lot of it quiet. I kept it quiet for my family because the events were over. Uh, the only problem is when I was uh, my son was about six years old, um, he experienced his first abduction, and of course that just opened up the biggest can of worms you can imagine for the family. Wife wanted to know what was going on, and so I had to tell her. And I uh, said it's in the family lineage, and uh, it won't affect everybody, but it will affect some. 
unfortunately it's not affected my daughter or my grandchildren, which I am grateful for, but it almost destroyed my son's life. Was your wife aware of your situation or, or even with the field in general before this happened? Not at all. Wow. I, I kept all this away from my family. I did not want anybody to know this stuff. So one of the things that we were really interested in bringing you to Colorado for was uh, related to an incredible case that we've had in the last few years and where, uh, from your research, one of our investigators decided to try the black light. Okay. The, first of all, I discovered the fluorescence phenomena in 1992. I uh, discovered it uh, while uh, looking at one of our abductees, and we found a Mandelbrot set-type marking on the inside of her left arm. Uh, she freaked out literally, started ran to the bathroom, started scrubbing like a rape victim, and uh, tried to get off. It just got brighter. Uh, can't get the stuff off. It's subdermal on contact if it's from the alien entity whoever or whatever they are. The uh, fluorescence is different than phosphorescence. Phosphorescence is a, a totally different situation. We do find some phosphorescent materials in some abduction scenarios, but for the most part, uh, in the rare cases that we do find this stuff, it's, it is generally fluorescence, which will, uh, uh, which has a certain nanometer length of various different kinds of fluorescence do, and that gives us an idea of uh, of what wavelength it is so that we can actually make some kind of determination about the material and whether it may be, in fact, alien or something else. And what was it that made you first look at the the fluorescence or give you the idea? To well, a DSP satellite specialist asked me the same question years ago in 1995, and uh, I said, because the alien sees an infrared, ultraviolet, invisible light, in my opinion. And he says, well, give me an example. I said, well, you know these people have, you know, tried to turn on their cameras and film their abductions, all that. He said, yeah, notice that they can't do it. Cameras turned off in the morning or nobody showed up. I said, like, somebody already can see what's already lit up in the room. They know what's going on. I mean, I said, it doesn't mean they can't be filmed. It doesn't mean they can't even be captured. You're not going to do it that way because they, you're playing into their hand. And uh, it's like a, a blind person saying, Oh, all I've got to do is just uh, keep moving around here, and these people are seeing in the room. They won't notice if I try to hide or something. It's just not going to happen. You're you're playing a game that you can't win. So you have to understand the nature of what they see, how they see, and what they do, and you have to allow for that. Once you do, you may be real surprised with the results you're going to get, and I think we're going to be able to prove that. I think some of our evidence already does. The fluorescent markings themselves shows a trace upon these people left by the alien entity, it's like some kind of a sweat, for lack of a better term, an alien fingerprint, so to speak, left on people that penetrates their skin subdermally on contact. If you can wash it off or get it off, we don't even want to know about it. Because this stuff won't come off. It'll literally be absorbed in the skin by the body in about 24 hours in, in most cases. We have had rare cases where it lasted up to two weeks, but again, that is extremely rare. So in some of the cases you get a sweat where... It seems like an entity had uh, come in contact with uh, the subject, and that area is fluorescent. Although sometimes you also find symbols. The the, the casual contact uh, fluorescence that gets on these people is often like uh, <clears throat> like long finger finger marks where they've touched you, or or just like sweat maybe on your hand where they where they held you or you held them. Uh, that sort of thing will show up. The markings themselves that involve. Uh, geometric patterns such as a 
various things such as a, maybe like a little pyramid or like a, a, or a triangle shape or some other moon shape or some form like that uh, in uh, strange little markings. and These are very deliberately placed on. There's no question about it. Either it was done by a machine or something else, but it's very deliberate about what it is. And it seems to be, in most cases, the same coloration and the same uh, the same nanometer length as the other. What do you find more? Do you find more of the sweat-type marks or more of the symbols? Uh, what is the percentage? Well, that's, uh, <clears throat> since we usually cannot get to an abductee within the first 24 hours, because they, they usually tell you this stuff about a month or two later, uh, then you realize, you know, that's, we've, we've already lost this, that aspect of it. Uh, it's kind of hard to answer that question because right. there, there's not enough stats to really verify that. But the, the fact is that the, generally speaking, the touch type things, the casual contact seems to be more prevalent. Um, the more startling, of course, is the symbols because those are very deliberate. I mean, if you see a Mandelbrot set on the inside of your arm right. in fluorescence in brilliant blue, uh, this is this raises a, a, a degree of alarm about who's where have you been and who's been living your life and doing things to you you don't know even have a clue about. Right. So I don't think it was sleep paralysis. Right, sleep paralysis doesn't have to do with uh, any type of fluorescence. But uh, with the symbols, do you find Mandelbrot's or, or more complicated uh, shapes like that, or do you find more simplistic type shapes? Most of the symbols we're finding are, in my opinion, fairly simplistic. <clears throat> For instance, they, they may be a, 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 a crescent moon, or it may be uh, a, a, a triangular forms and so on. But uh, the more complicated forms uh, we are fairly rare. We found one semi-complicated form, in my opinion, semi-complicated on a doctor in Phoenix uh, that was back in 1994 and um, uh, her case was ex extraordinary as far as I'm concerned because not only did she find the marking did I find the marking on her shoulder but the fact is uh, shortly thereafter after I left the conference that day she noted to me, uh, within uh, about four days later, that she had been missing for three days, and she said, "I have floor." I got one of those black lights, and she said, "Mr. Sims, I have fluorescence from my neck, on my breast, on my stomach, on my thighs, on my shins, tops of my feet. I have fluorescence on my pubic hair. I have fluorescence in my vagina." And she says, "I have the slightest idea how any of it got here." How did she find that out? She found that out simply by following my instructions the night wow. before when I examined her. And she took off, she, I say took off, many, some abductees <clears throat> simply take off in an event. For instance, they'll say, uh, I went out, I felt like I should leave, you know, so I, I went driving around at 3 o'clock in the morning and I saw a three-foot wounded owl walking down the street. Well, there aren't any three-foot owls wandering around the streets with large black eyes. There just aren't any. So what they're seeing is a screensaver memory where the, this situation is happening. And uh, this lady just took off for three days, left her husband, left everybody, and just took off and disappeared for three days. Comes back with fluorescence from head to toe. She did something rather remarkable. She literally took her uh, the fluorescence sample, if, as I asked her to, and placed it actually on slides. I was shocked that she would do such a nice thing. Were you able to examine that? 
We've had uh, several attempts to have fluorescence examined, uh, usually because the samples are quite small, quite, you can imagine, scraping just a few cell levels down on somebody's skin and trying to send that off to scientists. And first of all, most of the time, it's usually contaminated because they, you're going to use like a kitchen knife or something like that rather than a, a, something's clinic, you know, clean and you know, clinically available. That's just normally not going to happen. So uh, as a result, uh, the samples, uh, Phyllis Buttinger uh, has been of a great help to us. Uh, others have too. Eve Lorgan's helped us with some of it. Uh, but by and large, uh, there is nothing conclusive at this point. It has been an anecdotal and interesting, but it's, it's nothing conclusive, nothing scientific that I have to report. Um, we are very interested in the fluorescence. Uh, I have a top optics professor who contacted me one time from a major university, and uh, he was so delighted over the fluorescence, he said, I'll, if you want to publish this, he said, I'll help you get it published in the scientific journal. And I said, well, Doc, I said, you know, um, without being crude here, I said, uh, I'm not going to get published in the scientific journal. That's just not going to happen. Not a refereed scientific journal. He said, yes, you will. He said, if I have to help you write it, I will, and you will be published. And this, is, this guy's an eminent professor. I mean, he's known worldwide. And I said, uh, so we talked for a while longer, and he said some other things that were rather stunning to me. I mean, I was not prepared for his comments because generally scientists and others don't walk in and look at the UFO field and say anything really complimentary. And um, he said, um, he asked the question, and a, kind of a philosophical question. He says, what do you think of yourself? And I said, well, uh <laughs> That's what he mean. He said, well, he said, you did these surgeries. He said, I am stunned. He said, I am amazed and stunned. He said, and I, you, it took enormous courage for you to do that. And I said, how could I not do it if that's what I do? It, it is the only logical and right thing to do. So I did. And I said, but we did surgeries long before the public ones. I said, people just don't know that. You know, I haven't told people that. But he said, well, anyway, I want to know what you think of yourself. And I said, well, um, I said, I've think of myself more, I guess, like a pioneer. And he said, what is a pioneer to you? I said, a pioneer is someone who will go where others cannot go or won't go or don't know how to go. And he sends back maps. He said, what kind of maps would those be? I said, well, sir, I said they would be maps that scared men in academia could use without losing their careers. He giggled. And I said, I'd like to ask you a question, if you don't mind. He said, okay. I said, what do you think of me? He said, well, you're not a pioneer. I said, how's that? He said, well, there are four levels of civilization. Pioneer's the second level. He said, you're an explorer. That's the first level. He said, I don't mind telling you, there aren't any explorers in the UFO field. You're the first one. And I said, well, uh, uh, he said, no, you're the first one, and that's all there is to it. And he said, now, I'm in a position I think I can say that. So I mean, I'm just, I, my tongue's hanging out of my mouth. I, I, I didn't know what to say. You know, it's, it's, well, you're very kind and everything, and uh, so that was in that conversation. So uh, his interest, 
his interest in that call, for the most part, uh, was involved with the Florists. He felt that that discovery, in his opinion, as one of the top uh, people in his field, he felt that that was one of the greatest discoveries ever made in the entire UFO field. And uh, spoke to Rod, uh, Richard Hoagland um, last year at Roswell. I speak at Roswell every year and host um, events there with for the Roswell Museum in and through them. In fact, our work is on display there. And in the circumstance, um, <clears throat> Richard Hoagland and I had a long discussion with several other people. Uh, my friend, uh, Mike Heiser, an uh, 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 ancient languages professor, and others that were present, um, Pat Gray, my conference designer, and so on. And we all discussed the fluorescence issue, and he he had some very strong views about what the fluorescence might be. To him, it was... Um, he had these different views and finally I questioned about it I said well what do you think this is really about he said I think the fluorescence was given to you he said I think it's a gift I think it was placed there for you to find and they knew you'd find it and I said you basically you feel like I'm being set up in a positive way and he said he said I think you've been blessed with this I think you need to do something with it and he said I think it's an energy signature I said well it isn't it's not it's it's a chemical signature, and it's not. He said, well, I think you're wrong. And I said, well, you don't have any evidence, and I do. So what do you think I think? So, I mean, this is just, I said, if I'm wrong, I'll let you know. But I, right now, I said, I'm going to go with the chemical uh, compound, and we're going to stay with that until, unless something else shows up differently. I said, and I hope you're right, but I have no evidence to support that. The doctor uh, who was going to help you write the paper for the scientific journal did you move on and actually write that paper, or I haven't? I, I told the doctor. I said, "Well, well, sir." I said, "You don't mind me saying this?" I said, "But we don't have enough information to write a paper. We have no real finds. We have no scientific validation yet. We have anecdotal evidence." And he said, "I understand that." He said, "But Daryl, he said this is just incredible." He said, "I mean." People are talking about abductions in terms of being some psychological phenomena, this, that, or whatever. He said, here you are coming up with physical evidence that it's real. Physical touch in places these people describe. And in a coloration pattern that you know, and he said, that you kept very quiet about. He said, you know that there's some kind of a pattern to this thing. There's uh, The colors represent various things. or as well it seemed to represent different types of experiences and different type of things going on with people. So he was quite interested in that, and I don't feel at this point, and it's taken me 38 years to write my first book, and I'm almost finished. So it's not like I'm in a big hurry. Right. How long ago was it that you first came across the fluorescence? I came across the fluorescence in 1992 mm -hmm. uh, in a case working with a lady. She's actually a millionaire. Her husband had just been incarcerated uh, through the, in the federal system for, I don't know what his crimes were, white-collar crimes. But uh, she was an abductee, and I spoke with her and worked with her several times. I uh, had my senior investigator working with her at first. And then he got to a point that some of her experiences were profound, to say the very least. And um, she was having a tough time with her experiences. Um, in other words, let me give you an example of how tough her experiences were. She would come to session with my senior investigator, Dale Musser, with her therapist. She would often get migraines 
from talking about this experience and would end up having to go to the emergency room. So Dale brought me in, and uh, the therapist was there, and I said, well, um, uh, I sat down next to her. I said, how do you feel? She said, just fine. And I said, uh, well, I'm a hypnotic anesthesia therapist. She said, what does that mean? I said, you know those horrible little headaches you've been having about these experiences? She says, yes. So I can make them go away. She just looked at me and teared up, and she says, you can do that? I said, sure, I can do all kinds of things. I said, there is nothing they've done to you that can't be undone. Well, with this, we got talking, and all of a sudden, she started describing one of the most horrific events I've ever heard in my life. It was so similar to an event that I had when I was 17, and my last event that was violent. I realized this is the same guy. It's not any guy that shows up in the literature. And um, then she she said, uh, I'm ugly. I said, well, I, you might not have looked in the mirror lately. I said, but you're one of the prettiest women I've ever seen. There are very few women I've ever, I've ever seen this pretty. And I said, there's not anybody, your therapist or anybody in this room who doesn't believe that. She says, no, I'm ugly. And apparently this entity, one of the things he did was to contort her face in such a way, you like with electricity, if you ever had something electronic hit you, it can contort your muscles in your face so horribly. And she started getting this migraine at this time, talking about it. And as she got this migraine, her face contorted into the most ugly-looking thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, here's this beautiful woman turning. I mean, it looked like some kind of witch. You know, was, well, that's the weirdest thing. I mean, the therapist is sitting there freaking out. <laughs> I've never seen anything like, what is that? And Dale's sitting there with his eyes wide and everything. And I said... Uh, and she starts crying and everything, and her head starts killing her. And, and I said, do you want me to make it go away? And she starts crying. She says, please do. And uh, I said, okay. And then so I did that. And then I showed her how to remove these migraines herself. Well, needless to say, she was elated, and we never saw the therapist again. The therapist didn't, I, maybe the therapist didn't come back because she was scared of what was going on. And the second reason is the fact that the, the lady said, you know, I can take care of this myself now. I I'm in control. So the therapist never came back. And, I mean, you're able to solve her migraine issue, but uh, the repeated abduction issue, uh, is that something that you were able to help her with also? Well, I mean, we've had people that have tried to have asked us to make their abduction stop, and there is no real guarantee to anybody that you can make it stop. Just because mine stopped, uh, maybe there are some hints there. Uh, my senior investigator, in one of his abductions, Asked because these aliens seem to like him. I don't know why, but they—he's very friendly and very—he's not violent in any way. And he's—they've abducted him for all his life, and they seem to be able to manipulate him or handle him very well, so to speak. And uh, one day he said, "Why don't you ever abduct Daryl anymore?" And this interesting—he couldn't pronounce my name right, but they could. And they said Daryl is uncooperative. And that's all it'd say. It is interesting that I hadn't been abducted in 30-some years, and they knew who I was. They knew exactly who he was talking about. These guys are all on the same database. Everybody says they're all are different. The grades are different. The Mantis is this, and the Nordics are wonderful, and these other guys are awful. They're all on the same team. 
We've seen all of them on the same ship at the same time in a mass abduction December 8th and December 11th, 1992. Eight people abducted at the same time, same place, on two, two separate nights in December of 1992. And they all saw the same guys, all lined up. This is pretty good evidence that the theory that they're all separate groups out there doing their own thing uh, doesn't hold a lot of water with those particular uh, seven entities that showed up on that craft. Getting back to the fluorescence, and I definitely want to hit more on what you're getting at there. I have some more questions relating to that, but I want to wrap up the fluorescence stuff. Um, what are your future plans? Do you have plans uh, to document the fluorescence or perhaps to immediately get an abductee into a uh, a hospital where they can get, you know, an actual analysis of what's going on with the fluorescence, or what are your plans that way in uh, researching that or discovering more about it? Well, we're we're doing a serious procedures. One of the things I did f today for the Denver MUFON group here, your group, was to pass out two documents which we pr provided and that allow the uh, it gives a. Procedures for collecting evidence and for storing that evidence so that it can be analyzed. So the more cases we can get, as I spoke to Ethan about this, it, because he's uh, one of my colleagues is helping in this area here in, in Colorado. Ethan Rich, the di Rich is, uh, director of investigations the investor, mm -hmm. chief of your investigations here, and a remarkably good man, and, uh, and I've directed him a number of times uh, on this field and will continue to do so. Um, the issue is that uh, fluorescence is not easily nor readily, would not be readily analyzed in any kind of hospital setting. First of all, this type of evidence is minuscule for the most part. Second, it has to be collected in a, uh, in a reasonably forensic type setting where it's not going to be contaminated. And most of the time, that's not going to happen. And here the, there are these people who uh, are well-meaning and but don't know how to collect that evidence. And uh, and often by the time you know it, it's gone. We've had two cases of fluorescence this week. And, uh, in fact, with the two ladies I visited down in, and her husband down in uh, Arkansas this week before I did my CNN interview for two days, both of those people end up with fluorescence on them after I left. So we're real curious to find out what that's about. But our interest is to develop a, a system whereby, and I'm attempting to get another university on board with us through this uh, forensic uh, MD, uh, PhD. And if he comes on board and helps us, I'm sure he'll point us to the right direction where we can be. But we did have a, a, a PhD trying to help us uh, at uh, York University in Canada. The problem is his standards were so strict you practically would have to bring, fly the person up and place them in front of him and allow him to do everything. And then it might not be enough. I mean, it was it just standards were just so strict that it just made no sense. He didn't even want to see it unless it was under these, these austere, perfect conditions. Well, that's just not going to happen in most yeah. cases. Um, I guess just to wrap up the fluorescence, one other thing that I thought was really interesting is just that uh, Phyllis Buttinger, who you had mentioned, she spoke at our last symposium for MUFON, uh, talking about the invisibility properties of UFOs. Uh, some other people, Jose Escamilla, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Mm -hmm. He does the Rod's work. He's lately been trying to, he's gotten lots of footage where that's what he's doing. He's using infrared 
to get UFO footage, and supposedly he's found uh, a lot of it. He's got a lot of great footage. He's just trying to find financing to get these into movie format. And then another real popular one, another person who was at uh, last year's MUFON Symposium, David Sarita, where he uh, looks at NASA video, where NASA has been doing filming in the infrareds and seeing just almost like soup, just hundreds and thousands of things out there that NASA's gotten. Uh, I guess my last question would be, as far as the symbols that you see, the only other symbols uh, really that are very popular that might be related to UFOs would be crop circles. Do you ever see any symbols that are similar to crop circles in any way? We've not seen any symbols of, of that nature on the abductees. Um, there are a couple of reasons that may be true. One is because the, um, which is an opinion of mine based on some, based on a lot of good evidence and based on uh, some of my colleagues who've done some, some excellent work in the crop circle business. And I've said this long before it ever became public. Um, under Colin Andrews, my friend, who uh, privately and now publicly admits that at least 80% of the crop circles are frauds, and that the and I don't we're not talking about the Dave and Doug stupidity. Right. We're talking about circles that look remarkably good, and uh, I've said this long before they did their study, where he was paid to do the study and did an excellent work on it that, in fact, it was my view that the intelligence community was replicating those with microwaves. Hmm. And that had been going on for some time. And, of course, people ask, well, why in the world would they do that? Well, because if they know which ones are correct and real, then they do, do a bunch of new ones. Now they know which ones are, and you don't have a clue. Well, unfortunately, to a lot of UFO people, that doesn't matter. They're all real. Right. And they take all these pictures, make these big conferences, and say, Look at the next one. You hear this, whoa, oh. And you know, eight, at least 80% of them are just as big frauds you've ever seen. It doesn't make any difference, these people. They promote this stuff like it came out of the burning bush or something, yeah. and it didn't. That's really interesting because I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that. Ron Russell, another great local researcher, he's on the same. He's in the same area where he's thinking most of these things, uh, in fact, he thinks the most spectacular are actually human-made. Uh, although he thinks it's made by artists who do it all truistically, and he finds some interesting properties there. Simeon Hines, his partner, uh, finds that also. But that's a very interesting theory, the microwave theory. I hadn't heard that before. It would account for the way the nodules being popped and everything yeah. else, just like these other people say, well, only a microwave could do that. I'm not arguing that point. Mm -hmm. I'm just telling you, all you have to do is program it in the right computer and aim your microwave there, and you can cook it. That's very interesting. And I'll interesting. give you an example of that. Uh, my friend, um, uh, and you probably know him, uh, he's, the, he's uh, called the uh, uh, biggest news guy in ufology in Mexico. Um, uh, is, uh, Jaime, uh, Jaime, Jaime Masson. Masson, right. And he says, hey, Daro, why don't you come down to Mexico and hunt the chupacabras? And I said, well, I guess if I came down to hunt the chupacabras, I said, uh, oh, Jaime would be there with his camera, wouldn't he? Yeah. He said, it would be a good team. You know, this would be a good thing for us. And, and I said, well, I said, first of all, you haven't proved to me the chupacabras, what they are yet. There's something down there killing animals. Mm -hmm. 
but we hadn't proven to me what it is. I said, but let's take the viewpoint that it's real and it's a animal that's run sucking the blood out of it's a goat sucker, like like the name means. Let's suppose that's true. He said, Can you track him? Can you catch him? And I said, Well I can give him a radioisotope, lace it in his food supply, and then I can track him. I said, I'm a hundred, that's what I do. The second thing, I said, if I can see him, I said, I've got a guy that's volunteered to give me a six-foot microwave dish. If I can see him, I can cook him. So I think I can get him. But you got to show to me, first of all, where he's at, and he's real. When you do that, I said, I'll bring some equipment down. We'll go hunting. I'm trying really hard not to laugh because I love your uh, Musana your impression there. Oh, Jaime's a great guy. I, I just, I, We've been friends for years. I, uh, he, he, they're just—he's got some just amazing good video good these yes, days. He he's doing some just amazing work down there. Uh, next, I wanted to ask you about—they uh, came while you're sleeping. I wanted to talk to you about—that's uh, kind of your slogan. You have that on your website, lots of your talks, and uh, what you mean by that. And I think that's well, it's a metaphorical statement that, first of all, that. Most people, or a lot of people, simply don't understand, don't even know what's going on. They're literally asleep to the phenomena. I think when they wake up, they're going to be shocked, amazed. And those who are, when I talk to them, they're sitting there just wide-eyed like a calf looking at a new gate. I mean, they're just like stunned. What is that thing there? The second thing is that it has another meaning to the abductee. They came while you slept. And it has another meaning to other people in the UFO field. The fact is they're still coming while we're, while we're sleeping. And my issue is that we need to be awake in every sense of that word. And if we do that, I think that we have a good chance of catching at least one of them. The public in general being asleep with the whole issue. Oh, I think they're asleep at the wheel. Mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a bus that... Uh, Everybody's the passenger on. Nobody knows where it's going. As I told Dr. Leo Sprinkle, Sprinkle's group uh, when I spoke in the University of Wyoming several years ago, is <clears throat> a, a great group of people. And um, I said, you know, this is this is really a, a kind of a kind of a tough thing for me. I said because uh, you know you guys have a different uh, view about this thing and. And he had just spoken, and he was a really, they just love him. You know, he speaks up there all the time. And uh, and I just simply told these people, I said, I'm kind of a nuts and bolts guy. I flew up here on an airplane. I was sitting over the wing, looked out, and I checked every little nut and bolt on that wing. I kind of like to know that they're all in there. That not might not matter to some of you folks, but it sure does to me. And they all kind of laughed. Then afterward, I did my presentation, and Leo Sprinkle walked up to me. He's a real tall guy, about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, real tall. Still plays basketball. Yeah, right um, amazing guy. Mm -hmm. And he and gives me the biggest. He? he stands there with a paper in his hand. I wonder what in the world is in his hand. And he looked at me, and he's got this paper in his hand. Opens his arms, and he said, "Daryl, I'm so sorry." I thought, "Well, about what?" He said, "I didn't know." And he gives me the biggest hug and uh, hands me this paper. He said, "I." Really didn't know you, so I had this friend of mine who was pretty good at looking at a photograph and telling you all about somebody. He said, she wrote this whole thing about you. He said, it's actually quite flattering. He said, but I think she's right on target. 
I just wanted to give it to you. And so he did. We had several remarkable things happen at that conference that were just pretty interesting. But uh, Leo and I have differing views about the alien phenomena. To him, it's kind of like school, you know, first day at school or that sort of thing, and that's what we're in. And I assured him that after looking at showing, I said, I can, I said Leo, I can show you, you know, I can show you dead bodies and, and people ripped apart and all kinds of things that don't su- suggest that's the first day at school. If that's true, you're going to the alien Columbine school or something because that's not exactly the school I went to. And I said, uh, in my events, I said, you know, I remember what happened. And I, I'm telling you, it's not what you think it is. It's, there's something else going on. And I said, I don't say that they're not positive events. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you may be missing. I said, you're saying that this is basically we're we're in a learning curve here, and we just don't get it. I said, Dr. Macfield, same, same way. I spoke to him in Istanbul about that, and we disagreed uh, about that. And I gave them both my viewpoints, and uh, both of them just sat there, and they didn't have answers for some of the questions I gave. I said, the simple point is that uh, the answer they're here to say the planet fixed the ozone hole and a few of these other things just isn't consistent with what they do. It's consistent with the philosophy that people want them to be like that. I think we all would like that. But the reality is when somebody surgically removes your eyes, they're not here to save your planet. They're here to get your eyes. You better be wondering about why they need that. Why are they doing that? Why doesn't it make any difference that they would repair somebody? They would leave them in that condition in a jungle. And, I mean, that just is unconscionable. If a human being did that, you'd have them prosecuted and put in jail for 50 years. Alien does it, and it's like it's all okay. All you have to do is shave your head, be bald-headed, and have large black eyes, and everything's moral. There's something wrong with that kind of thinking, in my view. Leo Sprinkle, I love to death also. And uh, I think that... uh, Really getting into the field of abduction, uh, you and Leo are a great place to start because you have differing opinions, but you have great points. Him being more on a philosophical, maybe spiritual, and you, like you said, being a nuts and bolts guy. And uh, that's a good segue to what I was going to get to next, being a nuts and bolts guy. It seems as though, you know, in everything I've seen with hypnotherapists, not many touch on a big point of yours, which is the memory versus hallucinations. And it seems like a lot of hypnotherapists possibly could use a little up-training on identifying those differences. And I was wondering if you could explain those differences and how you... Well, I was that. on Art Bell years ago, and uh, I came on Art Bell program. It had been the third or fourth time I was on there. And I told Art, I said, well, I want to address the hypnosis part tonight. And I said to him, and it's going to sound like I'm against hypnosis when I do this. And I said, you got to understand, I'm a master hypnotherapist. That means I train and certify people in hypnotherapy. I'm a hypnotic anesthesia therapist. That means I take people to surgery and work the uh, hypnotic anesthesia with them. Um, and I said, I've, uh, I've many, I've, I'm a certified medical hypnotherapist. I've got all kinds of certifications in this field for many years. I said, so... I feel somewhat qualified to be able to talk about this to some degree. And the fact is, I said, a lot of you people out there in the psychological field don't have a clue. You don't know the difference between uh, memory and recall. You just don't. I said, that's why. And I said, it's amazing to me, some of you psychologists and psychiatrists pick on these little hypnotists as if they're doing evil when they're taking the basic same little course you took. 
what makes you think you're so hot because you've got a Ph.D. and they don't? I said, you're missing the whole point. And the way I can best accentuate that is that you people with the Ph.D.s are getting sued in the multi-million dollar suits for not knowing the difference between memory and recall. Somebody comes along and you work with them and you figure out that they've had sexual abuse by their family. And then you go take all this to court, take their family to court, get their kids to believe this stuff, and only to find out their family who supposedly sexually abused these people when they were children, maybe not were even in the country when it happened. They were in France or something. You end up with egg on your face getting sued for multi-millions of dollars for destroying families believing in this stuff because you don't know the difference between how memory is actually encoded and how it's decoded. If you knew that, you'd know how the alien does what he does. That's what it's about. How would you define the difference, and how do you weed out the difference? Memory, uh, in a, to, to put this in a, in a, in a context that uh, I think most people can kind of appreciate it in a practical way, is, uh, and I did this with CNN the other night when they were at my home for two days. And they said, well, could you have been leading these people when you were doing hypnosis with them here in this session? And I said, well, first of all, I said I did a number of things. One of the things I did was ask them about the weather. And I'll ask you the same question. You give me an answer if you can. What was the weather like on May 13th, 1976? You don't have a clue. Nobody does. But an abductee can tell you exactly what happened on the night he was abducted. They know exactly. Well, you can take that information back to the weather service and check it and see if they're accurate or not. In most cases, they are. They're very accurate. And when you realize that, then you realize that you're, you're, you're at least hitting on memory from that point of view. The second thing is if a person's in hallucination, for like in uh, stage hypnosis, anything you suggest to them, in most cases, they'll accept it and they'll do it. You're going to act like Elvis Presley, and they will. They get up there and make a fool out of themselves. That, that's what they signed up for. That they want to do. It's fun. That's called hallucination. But when you get a person on the other sense of the word, you get a person to in memory. And I did in front of CNN, and I kept telling the abductee. I said, "They said I'm in this room," and I said, "Okay, how many corners are in the room?" Well, anybody that knows anything about abductions knows those rooms are not, they're round. They're not square at all. And I've already given the suggestion the room is square. If they're hallucinating, they're going to tell me two, three, or four, or five corners, whatever. They're going to tell me the corners in that room. And you'll consistently get answers from abductees. They'll sit there stunned. They'll usually move their head looking around because they're in the room at the time. And they're flat telling you that there is none. And I'll tell them, yes, there are. You get in there and count those rooms, and, I, and they'll get mad, and then we'll get in a big argument in, under hypnosis. These people are in memory. That's why they're angry. You ask them, what does the alien's feet look like? And I haven't met but one person that actually knew the answer to that question, which is curious. And most of them will tell you, I can't see their feet. And that's why is that? It's just because I'm lying on a table. Well, for hallucinating, you can see the feet or anything else you want to. You just can make and just sit there and imagine it. But they don't do that. So that's a, these are just, just a couple of indicators to let you know that these people may, in fact, not be lying at all or hallucinating. Or, uh, and I'll give you an even better example. And this, this is going to kind of cut into some hypnotists in the UFO field. An individual came to me. He's, a, he's an engineer. He's a, in fact, he's a 
member of our organization. Uh, he's a nice guy. Been a friend for years. He said, well, Darrell, he said, you know, what I think you need to do is put these people behind a curtain, you know, mentally, so they can kind of look at their abductions and not be afraid of it. I said, well, that sounds great, you know. Where'd you dream that up? They said, well, that's what a lot of these hypnotists do. He said, I've read about them. And I said, and you feel like that's appropriate? Well, of course it is. You're, you're, you're softening the blow. You're making this, you're doing that, and you're doing so on. I said, so if I take the abductee out of the event and put him over behind a curtain and let him look at it and kind of dissociate him, then he'll be a lot better. He said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, that's a good idea, John. Let's talk about that for a minute. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, we're in this restaurant here. Why don't you, I said, don't you look out the window here and imagine yourself standing out there in a parking lot. Can you do that? He said, yes, I can. I said, it's pretty easy to do. I said, now I'd like for you to imagine yourself in your body out there looking back at us. Can you do that? And he said, yes. I said, John, that's called hallucination. You're not outside. You never were. How is it you think you can see us inside here from out there when you're sitting here? You see, you've allowed yourself to hallucinate already in our discussion, and you even believe it, and you haven't been hypnotized at all. Yeah, I've been familiar with that technique, and I've... You know, like everyone else, oh, what a great technique. I've seen it It is used a good technique. And... It's the technique is used to destroy memory. Yep. That's what it's used for. As a therapist, a therapist will use that technique to destroy, yep. not enhance memory, but destroy it. When I rid somebody of a phobia in 12 minutes of a snake phobia, as I showed you tonight in this presentation, this lady had snake phobias and abductee. The, the psychologist said it'd take two years of work with this woman to get rid of it. It was that severe. Well, I'll show you a picture of her holding a ball python in 12 minutes. How is that? I use that technique to destroy her memory of that serpent. Now, if people are using techniques like... The, the dissociation is a, is a technique used to not only... It, it not only desensitizes memory, it actually can affect it and even destroy it. Now, that woman has no fear of a snake at all, except a healthy fear that stay away from them, but it's normal. But uh, her fear before was so severe that if she saw she saw actually saw a worm she thought might have been a snake crawl under her door sill, left her kid out in the car for quite a while until I got drove across Houston to get the kid out of the car because she wouldn't come back out of the house to even save her kid. Now that's talk we're talking severe. I used some pretty powerful techniques to destroy her fear and memory of that of those snakes in that way. That technique is used to destroy or to uh, aberrate at least aberrate memory. Why would you be using a technique like that and call it enhancement? Which makes perfect sense, which um great about knowledge is making you rethink the things you thought were well, the, appropriate. These techniques are they're very good. There are many techniques used to uh, help people. Mm -hmm. They're called dissociative techniques. And they're wonderful techniques. We use them for therapy. Uh, when I work for psychologists or psycho psychiatrists, they'll ask me to work with their patient. One in particular, two, psy two psychiatrists from uh, uh, Tri-County, uh, it's a mental health, mental retardation outfit in, uh, William in uh, Williamson, in Montgomery County, uh, Texas. They sent uh, a, a guy to me to work that had had uh, severe problems with uh, uh, 
uh, anxiety for 14 years. Been on medication 14 years, and it's just it just broke his life. And he came in. And I, first of all, he's crying. He said, "You know, please help me. Please help me." And I said, "I can't do that because you know I'm not I'm not a licensed psychologist, or psychiatrist, anything. I'm just a hypnotherapist, blah blah blah, and I can't do that. And I wouldn't because I I will not go around your prescribed program that you're under the medical care of these people. So that's I'm I'm not able to do that." And that's the only way I could do that is you'd have to bring me back a letter saying that they agree for me to do this. And, of course, I knew they'd never give the letter because it's, it's a slap in the face says you can't take care of your patients. To my shock and amazement, he came back the next day with a letter from both the, <laughs> both the therapists saying, you're welcome to work with him. Please use your hypnosis, NLP, or other techniques to help him out. So I said, well, come on in. <laughs> I mean, what was I going to say? I said, have a seat. And he says, okay. Um, I also know that he's an abductee. And he's hurting. That's part of his anxiety. I know that. Because I know the guy. I've known him for years. And so, long story short, is I said, uh, I'm going to show you something, a technique that I've learned. It cost me $5,000 to learn it. It's so new, your psychologist and psychiatrist are not going to have a clue because they're not going to pay $5,000 to go learn new technology. They're not going to do it. Ten years, it'll filter down, and they'll get it, and then they'll probably rename it and claim it was theirs. That's the fact is we've been using it for years. I said, I try to keep myself up on some of the latest things out. I said, what I'm going to do with you today is called timeline therapy. I said, in which we have, um, he said, well, how many sessions do you think this will take? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, does this take a year or two? Or? I said, no, you don't understand. You have one hour. They haven't been able to tell me in 14 years. I, said, I don't care about their failures. And my work has never been based on the how well other people fail. I could care less. I said, I want you to sit down and follow my instructions. If you're stupid, it's going to take an hour. If you're smart, we'll be done in 20 minutes. If you just want to practice, we'll be done in 30. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Have a seat. In 15 minutes, we were done. He broke down and cried. He said, I can't believe I can get rid of my own anxiety all by myself. He cried like a baby. The point is that these techniques are powerful, but they alter memory. Sometimes destroy it, sometimes just alter it. I don't want somebody retrieving memory for me using techniques that alter my memory. Because I'm not in my body at the time. I'm not there. I'm not in the event. I'm watching the event. If you're watching the event, you're not in the event, are you? By definition, nature of that, you are, in fact, dissociated. So you have a lot of clients, thousands, I believe you referred I've, uh, to. I have a, a thousand uh, abductees worldwide that we've worked with and uh, have records on and so on, various different things. And, uh, and also have uh, I worked with people. I've worked in a hypnotherapy clinic for uh, about, uh, I guess, close to five years. So I've worked with just about everybody, everything from amputees screaming on morphine to uh, you name it. I mean, every kind of problem you can even probably imagine came through that office uh, that I've worked with. So I have a good, a good working knowledge about working with these people on, on various levels. With your... Uh experience with abductees what's your overall feeling of the nature of the abduction phenomena i know that's hard to 
pinpoint. But well, the, 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 I think one of the maybe a more simplistic way, but a, but it'll, I think it'd be a kind of a clear way to explain the abduction phenomena is think of yourself uh, a contact. First of all, the abduction phenomena. The abduction means just exactly what it says. You're taken without your will. That's abduction. That is kidnapping. Is what it is. That's all there is to it. Now, in the abduction experience, you generally will come out with one of two views. The first view is that I was taken against my will. I didn't like it. It was wrong, immoral, whatever. These people are often referred to as abductees. You have another group of people which feel like they were taken probably against their will, but it doesn't matter. It's probably for my best good. They know better than me. And they kind of abrogate their their freedom, their free choice, to somebody who abducts them. And they say things like, uh, well, they probably know better than us, and they're just helping us. They're here to save the planet, fix the ozone hole, or help me do some great thing. I'm just in grade one of their program. And that's okay. People can believe anything they want to. It's not a problem. When I look at that situation, I look at, I, I look at it, I can, and I can give you a glaring example of this. The Charlie Hickson, Calvin Parker case. These two, and I know this case, and I've interviewed both of them. I know it very well. These two were off-duty. Uh, they were. They say the, the original story is they were off-duty cops. They weren't off-duty. They were on duty. They were out there making a drug bust. Is what it was. UFO lands. They end up getting taken. One of them, Calvin Parker, comes off that craft with a cut across his stomach. His blood, his, his jeans are soaked down to the knees with blood. He comes off the craft an abductee. Charlie Hickson comes off the craft with his glowing-looking little face saying, you know, basically, you know, wow, here are two people, two cops, in the same event, and they come off two different people in the event. That's pretty amazing. To me, you can characterize this this way. Think of it as two lab rats. One little lab rat, like Charlie Hickson, you know, the genetic engineer says, okay, roll over, and the little lab rat rolls over, stand up, the little lab rat stands up, hey, <laughs> that's so cute, <laughs> neat, takes the needle, goes in, and sticks him anyway, and says, that's okay, you won't remember, although you do feel the pain, and the fact is you do remember, I don't care what they say, and so you get the same shot anyway. Then all of a sudden you put this little guy down. Oh, that's good. We're going to get him again. And you go back to a little lab rat over there, and you reach over this lab rat, and it bites you. That one's the Daryl lab rat. He'll bite the fire out of you. He will not cooperate. And you pick him up by the tail, and you sling him around, and he keeps trying to bite, and he won't cooperate. And you say, you will remember, and you give him a shot anyway. Hey, you like that little guy? And then throw him you know, across the floor. But the fact is, it doesn't make any difference what viewpoint you take. You're still a lab rat, and it really doesn't make any difference what you want to think about it. It's more comfortable to think that it was, you know, a higher view and higher calling that it was. But I seriously doubt that you being on the slab and me being on another slab makes any real difference. In your reference area, your example, you kind of hit on some uh Ideas of morality, at least, that, that oh, don't worry, you're not going to remember this anyway, which I always thought was weird, even with Betty Hill, where she's like, yeah, I'm going to remember this. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. And sure enough, she remembered. But it indicates some sort of morality. Do you see any sort of um, immoral? The alien lies. 
They prevaricate. They lie. They use subterfuge. There is absolutely no question about it. Literature is rife with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it doesn't make any difference what anybody says. It's crystal clear. They, we, I've seen them give eight different stories to eight different abductees on the same craft, same time, about the eight different, eight different screen memories of what really happened. Well, I used to be a police officer. If I, there are eight people in the mid, middle of a crime, and asked you all the same question, where were you or what were you doing? And you're all in the same room, and you give me eight different stories. At least seven of you are going to jail. That's called lying to a police officer. It didn't happen eight different... The guy didn't get murdered eight different ways. It happened one way, and seven of you are lying. And maybe eight. But you're going to get... All of them are going downtown. Every one of them. Until you find out exactly what's going on. Well, the alien does this all the time, and people do seem to just almost ignore it. Wow. They said they were from Planet Banlon. Isn't that a deodorant or something? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I'm Zeta Reticulite. Well, that's where you are this week. Where are you next week? Well, we're on the other side of the moon. Okay? We're from Mars. Now we're from inner Earth. Now we're from another dimension. Well, why don't you make up your mind? Why don't you give us an address? Now I have these people come up and say, Oh, I'm channeling these aliens. They're giving me this great information. Now, hey, anybody out there channeling aliens? You got the big secrets? You got you know the big one? I would be more than happy for you to answer my famous ten questions. Let me give you a hint. Don't try it. Because I'm telling you what, if you're really plugged into the alien, first of all, the real alien won't give you the answers anyway. And if you do get ten answers, and they're going to be wrong, if I can tell you, because you're not going to know the answers to them. I know that coming from your own subconscious, and you're just accessing your own brain, coming up with your own answers. And you're not going to have the right answers, because you don't know the next three elements are going to show up on a periodic chart. You don't know what the alien does. But you don't know that. So you got to come up with the goods if you claim this stuff. Mm-hmm. So you see the whole thing as, as malicious? I see the whole thing as subterfuge. I, okay. I, I, see the, I see this business as uh, for what it is. Mm-hmm. I used to be in the intelligence business. Whenever I went into the Central Intelligence Agency for two years during the covert, in covert ops during the Vietnam War, I was stunned to see the training I got was identical to what was going on with the alien. Hmm. Now, in the intelligence business, we lied for two reasons. One is because it would expose what we were doing. So you can't tell the truth about that. <laughs> what are you all doing today? Oh, we're going to uh, just do the take over Nicaragua or something. You, know, you just go out and tell everybody that. You can't do it. The nature of your business dictates you can't. Same thing with the alien. They're not going to tell you what the truth is, what they're up to. Mm-hmm. Why do you think they haven't done that? 30, 50, or 100, 1,000 years. Because they're not going to tell you. Well, that makes it intelligence then. And what we need to do at that point is counterintelligence. Second reason we lied in the Central Intelligence Agency, and they do in any intelligence agency, I don't care if it's Mossad, I don't care what it is, KGB, it doesn't matter. The answer is that when we lied simply because we couldn't tell you because it would compromise what we were doing. And second, we lied simply because uh, we we you cannot give out this kind of information and uh, and allow it to be u- either used against you. And we would also give also false information or misinformation or disinformation. This is part of the, the nature. When I found the alien was doing the same thing, well, duh, does it take a genius to figure out that that's an intelligence operation that's going on? 
I mean, aliens from another planet are here to save our planet, but they won't tell us anything. They'll, they'll, they'll pull your eyeballs out of your head and do this and do that, kill a couple of kids occasionally, mutilate a bunch of cattle, but won't tell you a thing, and they're going to save your planet. Why do I not believe that? They tortured and, and mutilated and did horrible things to the Amazonian Basin Indians for over 10 years. One of us most well-documented cases, Jacques Vallée says Bob Pratt's book and his work is the finest field work he's ever seen. That's the way field work is supposed to be done. Unbelievable, horrific stories down there for years against the Amazonian tribal Indians. They're helping the universe by torturing Indians? That sounds like something went on in the United States a long time ago. Why do I not believe that story? And you have a case where a couple of children were actually died. They actually died as a result of their abductions right in Dallas, Texas. So to me, this sort of thing doesn't uh, it doesn't lend itself to a morality that we understand. But it does. It lends itself to something to me that is amoral at best. And I suspect that the people that are in, entities that are doing this, the Greys and the other guys and so on, the Nordics, who did. We've got one Nordic that treated uh, Dale Musser. So good and so kind in the mass abduction, it was just moving to listen to the story. It really was. That same Nordic overheard another one of my abductees laughing about the implant he hid for 22 years that they couldn't find. And the Nordic looked over and heard him thinking. And a few days later, the Nordic showed up and tortured that man until he tried, thought he gave him the information of where that implant was. I was involved in that case the day it happened. I know what I'm talking about. Same Nordic. didn't make a bit of difference. They don't care whether they torture you or make you love them. It doesn't make a bit of difference. They're there to do their job. They don't care whether it means cutting your eyeballs out or cutting the udder off of a cow, live or dead. It doesn't make a bit of difference to them because they're not mor- they have no morals. They just do what they do. The real issue, if there's a moral issue, you have a moral issue with the alien, you're going to have to deal with mid-level management because that's where the orders are coming from. These guys are just doing their job. Mm-hmm. Wow. I was trying to lead you to that very thing, the mid-level management, and I thought I had failed, but luckily at the last second you you went there. And um, I guess just that theory of you know, and I you hear it a lot of the um, the worker bees, and then the mid the higher ups uh, who actually are directing things. Higher ups usually don't come and get involved. If you, I don't know if your research shows this, where unless something goes very wrong, uh, they don't get involved. It's usually well, in my uh, upcoming book, it, it covers a chapter I'm finishing up right now. It's called Hierarchy, and it, it, it takes a vastly different view than the UFO field does about the alien. Basically, there is a thing I call the usual suspects, which I have a lineup mm-hmm. of these entities, various different entities, the small gray, the large, larger gray, the Nordics and the mantis being, and all these other things. And that's the lineup. And most people in the UFO field feel like that those are, in fact, the major players and they're calling the shots and doing all that. Well, they're not. They're they're on the lowest rung of the food chain. And even inside their group, it go, it denigrates. I mean, mm-hmm. it just goes down the toilet, so to speak. Little grazers, they're, you have to think of them as a 286 computer with legs because they just don't have a clue. If you do things in your abduction that are outside the purview of what they're trained or uh, or that data input is for in their brain, if they have one, what you're, what you're going to find is that they can't deal with it. They don't know what to do, and it really confuses them. They'll 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 break up the abduction. You want to break up an abduction? You want to stop an abduction? Do things that are not consistent with that with his abilities, and uh, they freak out. They don't know what to do. They'll go back and 
usually they'll come back with help the next time they show up. Mm-hmm. Their, their little gray doctor boss will show up with them, and he, he knows what to do. He's pretty sharp. Mm-hmm. He'll, uh, and if he can't fix your problem, if there is a problem, then they'll send what they call as a MIB. His job is to make sure that your prob- his, whatever the problem is in the business is solved. Mm-hmm. And they are very effective about what they do. Mm-hmm. If they send two MIBs, you're in trouble. So a MIB, men in black, is that what you're getting well, at? Well, it's or? something in black for sure. Uh-huh. If they dress in 1950s clothes, right. American style, even if they're seen in Slovakia, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They, they, it stunned the Slovakians when they saw them. Why do they dress in these old, like, detective-type clothes with a strange little hat and everything like it's on American TV in the 50s? This is because what they do. I said, they have a real clothing problem. They just haven't been able to update their clothing in quite a while. You have to excuse them for that. She said, but why don't they dress Slovakian if they're trying to, you know, do this stuff to us? I said, it's a good point, but I just don't think they care. Because I don't think they think you can do a thing about it anyway. It doesn't make any difference whether you get it or hear it or remember it or not. MIB does not give a hoot one way or the other whether you remember or not. Now, the alien does, but the MIB doesn't care anything. He's just going to straighten out your... He's going to clean your clock and straighten out your problems. I've heard of... uh, or read about experiences where someone has witnessed a couple of MIBs uh, around an old you know, styled 60s, you know, Starsky and Hutch kind of car, uh, grayed out or whatever, and then the car disappears. They turn around and, and it's gone. Have you had any experiences or had anybody come to you with situations sure, of like that? We have. Mm-hmm. we have one case in Houston, Texas, where a lady, a very credible lady, was approached by a female alien with a blonde hair bouffant style and it's alien, what, pure white-faced alien type one. If you imagine an alien with a fake wig on, because that's exactly what it was, driving a Ford, a little Ford Escort, and it would follow this woman every day to work for six weeks, every, five days a week. And she just said, I never saw it, never saw it on weekends. She said, it always showed up right next to me or behind me or right in front of me. She said, that was the weirdest thing I ever saw. She said, I'd leave to go to work, and I'd come back, get on the freeway, come back home, and there it'd be again. Went on for six weeks. I, I, I studied this case very carefully. My senior investigator said this. He said, Daryl, he's an abductee. He said, she's making it up. She's hallucinating. She doesn't know what she's talking about. He said, I, I don't believe a word of this thing. And I said, Dale, she's telling the truth, and that's all there is to it. He said, well, I think you're wrong. I said, Okay. So anyway, this lady, in her last ex- one of her experiences, I actually had to read the license plate off to me, and I ran the plates on it, and the plates were stolen out of Dallas, and uh, the car actually disappeared one time. What was interesting is the in- her parents came down, who do not know anything about her abductions for 30 years. They're helping her fix her house because she's going to sell it for long. And her daddy was going to help her put up a couple of boards and nice little things for old fella to do. And the long and the short of that was simply that this lady, uh, the alien creature, whatever it is, with the bouffant hair style, shows up and starts moving toward the um, driving toward her. They're at the Home Depot out in the middle there, loading up their little amount of um, 
wood and so on. And this strange-looking woman in this red Ford Escort comes driving by, slow motion, real slow, and just looks at him. And she said, I was so mortified because, I mean, how are you going to explain that to your parents? And she said her mother looked at her and said, Oh, my God, did you see that woman? She's the whitest skin I've ever seen on a human being. Skinny and frail. Like she's going to die. She said, I didn't know. I said, I told him I didn't see anything. And I just had to like it. I didn't want to talk about it. She said, my parents saw it. Well, interestingly enough, Dale, who did not believe a word of this, his wife a few nights later asked him to go get some milk at the store. So he goes get some milk and bread. Walks out of the store and he sees this black fellow laying, hanging halfway out of his car. He thinks, well, is that is the guy dead? Is he hurt? Is he injured? Is he had a heart attack? What, what's going on? Dale kind of walks toward the guy, and all of a sudden the guy wakes up and goes, <gasps> like that, and he realizes something's wrong, and jumps his car, you know, shuts the door, he gets in his car, starts to race off, and just he starts to back up and everything. Uh, Dale notices somebody in the back seat with yellow bouffant hair, pure white face, and he's, oh, my God. The reason he's really freaked out about this is because this is the this is the this is the same car. He recognizes it from being there the other night in the interview. Well, he jumps in his pickup, takes off after it, and they get in a big road race right down the street. And uh, finally, the car races right through uh, uh, a red light that's already started to change, and so cars are starting to come. And Dale slams on his brakes and just slides almost into the intersection, missing cars. And the car goes on through. It gets through, and all of a sudden, this little head sticks up in the back seat with a black guy's driving the car with that little bouffant hair and just looks back at Dale. He said, my God, he said, the woman's telling the truth all along. I said, I told you, I know when they're hallucinating and when they're not, Dale. He said, I, I Daryl, I'm so sorry. I said, I, I should have believed you. I said, it doesn't matter if you believe me or not. I said, my work's not based upon anybody's belief. I don't care about beliefs. I care about what actually is. Would you describe this lady and uh, these other MIBs as uh, mid-level management? No. What would what are the characteristics that you would say are of, of mid-level? I've never really discussed that with anybody. Uh, the reason is because uh, some of it will be discussed in the in the book, but the fact is that mid-level management is the one that makes decisions. They. They, uh, and I'll give you an example. In the mass abduction, December 8, 1992, the double mass abduction on December 8 and December 11th, 11, eight people taken at the same time, same place, same event. An astounding set of events occurred. They were taken to a craft from regular little craft. They were taken out to a huge craft, reportedly 50 miles thick and 600 miles across, which I did not believe the stat story myself, that part of it until Dale showed me a, photo, a, a film of it, filmed by a Japanese astronomer, of that, apparently, that possibly that craft, because at the same time that the, the abduction events were going on, Dale got the film and brought it over to me and showed me, and I just was stunned listening to him and looking at the film. Uh, I had given a post-hypnotic suggestion to the woman uh, the, the woman that, that actually was involved in this uh, this car incident I just mentioned. And what I was trying to do is get the alien to respond to us, see if I could trap them in a response. And because I found a piece of information in an abductee that I felt was harmful to them if they were acting like an intelligence group. 
I think we stuck pay we we struck pay dirt because of the fact they did respond. They responded to the post hypnotic suggestion I gave her with that information, and I installed it not as her memory but as someone else's. But how would you get the information if it's not your memory? And they know that you don't know the information because they, and he wasn't supposed to know it either. But how did you get it when you weren't there? So I knew they were going to be real befuddled about this whole thing if it came off right. When she gets up and blurts out the information, they end up abducting eight of her people, including my senior investigator, because if you want to know what I'm doing, you'd pick him up, obviously, if you're not going to get me. The only problem is Dale didn't have a clue because I never told him. He's an abductee. Why would I be telling him things I was doing against the alien? I mean, that's like ringing the dinner bell for them, you know. So I didn't tell him, and uh, there were two beings that showed up on that craft, and every, all the little aliens that night were very afraid, all of them, all the entities. Uh, Nordics, all of them were terrified. Somebody big was on board the craft, and there weren't going to be any mistakes this time, whatever that means. And Dale and this woman both were called in by what I refer to as mid-level management, and it's got guy sitting in this chair in her room and in his room, and all these entities are lined up on one side. And Dale and this guy ask a question. When he asks a question, he doesn't ask it twice. They don't understand anything other than blind obedience and fear. And whenever Dale, Dale, they were asked. He asked a question. He said, "Why is why is he doing this? Speaking of me." Dale looked around. And, what What are you talking about? I mean, this guy, he got ballistic. When he asked a question, you, I mean, you're, you can imagine somebody being an ultimate power, so to speak, over, over slaves. That's about the way it was, it was, look, it looked like. And he demanded to know the answer. And finally, uh, after the second question, Dale didn't know the answers to it. And he, this guy went ballistic again. All of a sudden, the Nordic walks over, realizes he needs to defuse the situation. He goes over and grabs Dale's face with his hands side to side on his face, puts his forehead next to Dale's forehead, looks into Dale's eyes, and looks back at the guy sitting in the big chair and says, he doesn't know. Then the guy got calm because he realized Dale didn't know at that point. But he wasn't going to accept Dale's answer for that. In the other room, they were asking this lady the same questions another guy was. And the last two questions they asked were rather interesting. Each one asked two separate questions. They produced a holographic image of a brain and asked Dale to point at the human soul. And Dale said, well, no one's ever been able to find uh, the soul specifically. And the guy went ballistic again. He screamed at him. He said, point to where the human soul is. He didn't know. He doesn't have a clue. In the other room, they were asking her the same question, but it wasn't a computer-generated brain in a hologram form. It was on a screen, in her case. And she said they wanted to know where the human spirit was. I told them I had no idea. And they didn't like that answer at all. So, uh, like I said, mid-level management doesn't know all, see all, and do all, so to speak. But they do give, they call the shots. And whenever they do, you can see if he gets that upset, over little things like that, and these little guys are all afraid of this guy. You can just imagine what kind of orders they're given, and it, it, it brings it brings up all kinds of imagery that is not positive. And I spoke to a group of scientists in uh, Tampa, Florida, and these people are well-to-do. Uh, one guy staying there at his home was worth 
I know personally $52 million. I know that. He's worth a lot more than that, but that's what I did know that he was worth. Most of the people in that room were worth a fortune. And I was working with a, a, a lady in the other room, a, a, some therapist, and she said she had some issues she wanted me to work on, and so I did. When I finished, I walked out, and she walked out, and they said, could you speak to us, please? And I said, I don't really think you people would want me to give you my viewpoint. I said, you're pretty much of a pretty much of a new age view that, you know, you kind of feel like these entities are kind of misunderstood and we don't get it and this is like first day of school and we you know, and all this sort of thing. and I said, I really can't contribute to that kind of thinking. So it'd just be better, you know, that you just felt the way you felt and thought the way you thought and I'll just sit here and, you know, drink my Dr. Pepper and eat a cookie or something, you know. They said, no, we really want to know what you think. Now, she really don't. He said, yes, we do. He said, you're not going to offend anybody here. Real smart bunch of people, nice people. And I said, I gave them several metaphors. They were just, I mean, they were just, they were, you could have heard a pin drop in that room on the carpet. And the last thing I told them, they said, we'd like to know what happened to you in your last event. And I said, I've never told anybody that. He said, would you tell us? And I said, no, I won't. I said, I will give you a metaphor. Because metaphors are full of meaning and they can give you a lot more information than even facts. He said, would you do that? I said, I'd be glad to. I said, imagine if you will. A beautiful set of green hills. Beautiful, beautiful range. And there's cows all over this range. I mean, it's just, it's cow's paradise. More grass than you can eat. I mean, it's just incredible. And out among the cows, there's cow 213. And cow 213 just got there, and he doesn't have a clue. And all of a sudden, one day, while they're out there talking and doing their little cow things, here comes this little short guy with large bug eyes with his little milk bucket walking toward a cow. And cow 213 looks to the other cow and says, who's that? And he says, well, that's the milkman. Uh-huh. What does he do? He, he milks cows. Uh-huh. Where does he work? At the milk factory. Uh-huh. Okay. Cow gets milked. The little man goes away. This happens from time to time. One day, it's cow 213's turn. Here comes the milkman. He's got his little bucket. He starts walking toward cow 213. Cow 213 says, Hey, 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 what do you think you're doing? He says, I'm, I'm the milkman. You have to let me milk you. I don't think so. Oh, you have to. You're a cow. I'm the milkman. Uh-huh. It ain't going to happen, buddy. And so little milkman's all confused and upset. He goes back to milk factory. When he gets to the milk factory, he tells the committee that he wasn't able to milk cow 213. And they said, well, go tell him you love him. It works on all the other cows. 
So here comes the milkman. Cow 213 says, hey, what do you think you're doing? I love you. You are wonderful. You are special and chosen. You are one of us. Uh-huh. Beat it. Didn't work. Little man goes back to the milk factory and says, hey, Cow 213 won't cooperate. They said, then scare him. It works on the rest of them. You get the milk. He goes back and, ah! Cow 213 kicks little milkman back down the hill. Little milkman goes back all scuffed up, dirt all over him, and <laughs> his little milk bucket full of dirt. And look what he did to me. And they said, well, that's that's a mess. I said, so it got worse. And the engineer looked at me and he was leading the group and said, what happened? I said, they sent the butcher. I said, I think you can imagine the rest. I said, so don't tell me about aliens. I'm here to save my planet. I said, you weren't there and you don't know. You're sitting here surmising a bunch of stuff that you don't have a clue about. Not even close. It feels, I guess the whole subject is strange because that story, it really makes me smile most of the time and then I feel kind of self-conscious about it because it's a traumatic thing. But of course, you know, you're able to um, get across your point in this metaphor, I think, in a you know a very entertaining way. Um, like I called it earlier, I think your, your, your Texan charm, you know, shines through. But uh, like you said, you know, that metaphor says a lot. And uh, to find out more about mid-level management, you have to wait for the upcoming book, huh? I guess so. Yep. Well, well of course, you, maybe we can arrange a meeting. And maybe you can have your own butcher. Uh, well, that's hey. okay. This, a lot of people don't don't know, they, mm-hmm. they don't recognize what right. is up in the next level. Mm-hmm. It is not a higher level of what's down beneath. The guys down beneath are, are bad enough. Right. In as much as they, like I said, the Nordic will torture you one minute or or treat you so good that you'll just nearly cry. It really doesn't matter. It's what is effective. It's what works on you. It's called intelligence. We did that all the time. If you're a, if you're a true, honest to goodness field. Uh, it, they're actually called case officers. There aren't any real CIA. A CIA agent is not a person who works in the CIA. It's a person who works for the CIA. In other words, you've been hired by them. You're not part of them, but you work for them. That would make you a CIA agent. A CIA agent is not one of the spies, so to speak. He is called a case officer. I don't know why people don't understand this. They think they know about CIA. They don't have a clue. A case officer is the guy who would hire you to become a CIA agent. You now become an agent of the CIA. You're not in the CIA, but you're an agent of it. Mm-hmm. So this sort of thing is uh, it, it gives you a, a little sense of, of how the intelligence community works. And the fact is that the way, the, way it, the way it works for you to be a case officer to gather intelligence in another – and they asked me if I would be interested in coming – staying in the, in the company, and I told them I would not. I said I, I – I can't do that to other people. Basically, what being a field case officer is, is getting, in most cases, if you're going to do the 007 stuff, is basically getting people to betray their country. 
I can give you all kinds of illustrations of how that works and, and how it does work. My point is, that's the purpose. I don't think there's a whole lot of difference with the alien. And I've had people literally tell me that they knew certain things about the alien. They were horrified what they found out accidentally. And they they would not they begged me not to even force them to tell them because they felt they'd be betraying the alien. I said, but they're not us. I know, but I feel I have to protect them. I have to. I said, but if the human race is at, at risk, if they were, I'm not saying they are, but if they were, and it does matter to you. No. You sound like somebody's brainwashed a little bit here. Hey, we're we're your species. You know, get your head screwed on. If there's information out there we need to know, we kind of need to know that. You know, you don't need to be hiding that from the rest of us. And that's just as criminal as it gets. You know, you're you're talking about dealing against humanity here. You know, we're not supposed to know anything, so you can allow them to continue to do what they do, and you know that it's not they're not up to any good. I mean, this is just absolutely insane to me. But that's what a case officer does. He gets people to betray, and and I've seen this not with all abductees, but several abductees who actually found out information they felt was really dangerous that for the alien if it got out about them. And they flat told me. Face to face. One of them is Corpus Christi, Texas. She cried. She said, please don't make me tell you what I know. I said, even if it, it, it would help us and might even help save us in some way or did something like that, she said, it doesn't matter. I don't want to betray them. Man, that's just weird stuff. Mm-hmm. This all gets kind of into motive, uh, at least with the intelligence and the subterfuge. So getting further into motive, if you were to speculate, and, and maybe you don't even want to speculate, or uh, but do you have any speculation towards then what the motive is behind the subterfuge? And the, and uh, we could obviously sit here for hours and go through all kinds of possibilities and scenarios, uh, but the fact is that... Um, when they finish with a, with an abductee, and they especially if they come into the contactee mentality, basically a lot of contactees have a a very interesting view about the alien and how they're here to save us and fix the planet or whatever. Uh, both of these, it, it seems to me that realistically, both of you, the abductee and the contactee, may be just viewpoints provided by the alien just to keep you arguing with them on a lateral level arguing with each other because you've missed the whole point both systems both ideas is you ought to have been focusing on the one that created the problem to begin with Einstein says that whatever whoever created the problem can't solve it we didn't create the problem I think we can solve it the alien created it and I don't think he can solve it that's a very interesting perspective um did you have anything more to say, motive-wise, or? I'll leave that to your imagination. Okay. Wait for the book. I didn't think you would even go that far. I didn't think you. I thought you were going well, to tell me to wait for the book. Well, you're a you guy. You've uh, made my stay here wonderful. My oh, conference well, designer you. thinks you. that you and and Carolyn have done a, a tremendous job, and you in particular. And uh, so I'm perfectly willing to uh, Thank you. give out more than I would in a regular interview. Well, and to be honest, you know, uh, my perspective, I try to face this, especially with UFO Think Tank, in a more objective, 
you know, I'm trying to get information and everybody to share because everybody has some important things. And my perspective tends to be, you know, more on the side sometimes of the altruistic and the... And the sure. But, uh, you know, what's wonderful about meeting, you know, just the varied and many great minds in this field is to hear all of this this information and data and you know this isn't stuff that you came up with out of nowhere you have a lot of research that was done and I think that's what's great for us all to share and open our minds to and like you said you know if they're trying to pin us against each other um, if we talk to each other and we we can talk to each other civilly and instead of fighting against you know those basics and move on I think that'll move us somewhere Um, and some of the things that you've done I think like you talked about with trying to get an effect with them uh, is very interesting because it sounds like you've been successful Uh, like you talked about an experience with a lady who you asked her to um, bring back Freddy Krueger's hat in this case the lady came to me in tears crying and uh, there was a hypnotherapist I was training at the time who was an airline pilot who the best way to characterize him is uh, not cold just clinical I mean you're not going to find him crying over anything he was nearly in tears listening to her please please help me they said they're coming after my children if I give you any more information and she cried and cried and cried I said do you think they're going to get your children anyway she says yes I said then the threat is simply veiled it doesn't mean anything because they've probably already done it anyway. If your kids are abductees, they are anyway. If they're not, there won't be. If they choose who they, they will. That's my point is that the reason I don't want to help you in one sense of the word is because you're a bigger lab rat for me than you are for them. I said, I'm getting more data and better information from you than I have in all of my abductees at one time. That's how good your stuff is. I said, on the other hand, based on my humanity, I said, I have to help you because you've asked. As most people don't have presence of mind enough to me to even ask for help. They're so busy whining about their problem or glorifying the alien in such a way they don't realize there is a problem. That uh, I said, I, since you've asked, I'll help you. But I want something from you. She said, what's that? I said, I want Freddy's Krueger's hat. I want you to bring his hat back through the dream. That's because I know your events are real. You'll never convince most people of that until we can get Freddy Krueger's hat. She said, what do you want? And I said, "Uh, you want to do this program? She said, yes. I said, sleep. And she just fell over. And then I installed a post-hypnotic suggestion to assault her captor. She assaulted her captor and and tore half his eye cover off. Amazingly enough, noticed that it wasn't part of his eye, and which we've known for a long time. Later, she uh, she was not a very strong woman, so I installed strength in her. And the next time, she physically put her left arm around the entity, so she captured him, and then. she reached up and grabbed the entire eye cover and tore the whole thing off this time. I wanted to bring the eye cover back. Freddy Krueger's hat, so to speak. 
You know, if you think you've had a dream, it's a wild dream and all that, and you bring back an eye cover, it tends to indicate that that dream might not have been just a dream. So at this point, she got the eye cover off, and I asked her a number of questions like, is, uh, is he in pain? She says, no, he's not in pain at all. He's not even wiggling or trying to get away, which indicated he probably was biomechanical. And interestingly enough, several other things happened, one of which Astor described the eye, what was under the eye cover, and she described this red stipple screen with these white lines running back and forth across the eye. Well, that was very telling. Again, indicating the possibility of a biomechanical device or something connecting to him. And so, uh, uh, as I said before, when these little you do things these little guys can't comprehend or outside their purview, they'll bring help. This time, the doctor type, which is looks just like him, but he's a little taller usually, and he's a lot smarter. They brought uh, three little entities and him, and they brought a little doctor type. He came. And as soon as he, she was tearing the eye cover off, the little guys were over there trying to get the thing out of his out of her hand. And one of them was on each finger, and they could not get her hand pried open. Finally, this doctor type walks over with this little device that kind of looks like earphones, put them on her head, and she just tranced out instantly, and her hand finally opened, and he just grabbed the eye cover and walked off with it. So we didn't get it. The fact is that she feels that she actually did um, get the eye cover, and she felt like she'd failed. She said, I feel like I betrayed you, uh, because it obviously didn't bring the cover back. She didn't know this herself in her conscious mind. And it's really funny and amazing how that whole thing went down, but she's done some pretty incredible things. She passed away this year. Her name is uh, Linda Taylor, a uh, wonderful lady, and I just, uh, God bless her and God rest her soul uh, for helping us. She, she was uh, a wonderful woman who helped us gather evidence and uh, had a profound love for her family and her children and did not want them abused or taken anymore like she was. And her husband's also an abductee. He's still alive today and still in contact with me. Uh, her children, or her daughter is, is still in contact with me, an abductee as well. And I've worked with that family for uh, over 10 years. And wonderful people. But the fact is that these people have already been through the mill and drugged through a knothole backwards, so to speak, and they're really tired of it. And there is no... If you hear it from their perspective, um, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever talked to Dr. Carla Turner, but if you sit and tell her things like this, how positive the alien probably could be and we just don't get it, that woman will tear your head off in anger. Her, her husband will lift up his shirt and show you the claw marks where this reptile has torn him apart. And then they'll look at you and ask, do you think any part of that was positive? And they don't usually say that in a real nice way when she was alive. I mean, a lot of people kind of feared that little gal, a little tiny tyke. And she's one of my abductees, and, and I just I loved her a lot. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. And her husband, Elton, was uh, they, they've just got scars and battle scars on them from their events. And I'll tell you, you will never convince them, not in the slightest. They, they'll ask you if you're mentally ill. And suggest you get on your meds and get a counselor or something. You obviously don't have a clue. They have no kind words whatsoever for anyone who has a differing op opinion 
based on their experience. Of course, right. it's their experience they're right. looking at. But uh, anyway, there are some people who've gone through some pretty tough things. And then the Taylor Taylors have been through this like that. And uh, she passed away this year. But she was my um, she was uh, my spy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. She was in the field getting evidence. Well, and. Uh to end, I want to ask just a couple more questions. They're short, or just on ufology. But to end the whole abduction thing and try to end it on a good note, you did mention that you have ran across in abduction experience angelic type creatures. Yes, it, that's an amazing subject. I'm glad you brought that up, Alejandro. The rare cases where an a, where an angel will show up, very rare. In an abduction, the alien takes off. 90, 90 miles an hour in the other direction as fast as they can. They scatter like like scared little chicks. It makes one wonder, why would you fear an angel? Mm-hmm. It's obvious you're not on the same side. Do you believe these angels are aliens or something else? No, there's no question the, the angels are not aliens. The, the, the issue is, uh, and based on everything we know from these rare cases where these events have happened and, and I have to tell you that there, we've got some really good cases where they where this has happened. Mm-hmm. I know these people personally. I know their integrity. I know a lot about the case. I'm not saying here. I'm simply telling you that the alien is terrified of an angel. Mm-hmm. Aliens are not terrified of aliens. Mm-hmm. There is something so radically different about this about an angelic presence. Uh, in in fact, in the famous Calvin Parker case, I told you about him coming off the craft with his stomach cut and how he assaulted his captor and all this, and and uh, and then Charlie Hickson coming off the craft, you know, thinking he's like he's glowing, so to speak, you know, and and so on. Uh, and I could tell you a lot more about even that case where Charlie Hickson's story doesn't bear out at all. Uh, I know I questioned him, and I tell you, you would not believe the responses I got out of him because I questioned him properly. Uh, there are ways you can ask questions, and I guarantee you can elicit responses that will absolutely stun you if you ask the questions properly. And uh, in these rare cases with the angelics, there is a decidedly a clear viewpoint that there is no reckoning between the two, and one is infinitely more powerful than the other, obviously, because one scattered and took off. There is an ancient saying in the Bible that I like real well. It says, the wicked fleeth when no one pursueth. Have you ever tried to uh, have an abductee call in these angels? Try to. We actually had one case where uh, I actually wanted to do an experiment one night. My uh, uh, my daughter-in-law, when she first, before she became my daughter-in-law, she is a lady in Brazil who fled her abductions, horrified by what was happening to her. I mean even with her mother, horrible stuff. When she got to the United States, she had a thing on the back of her neck looked like a, a U inside a U, uh, like a, uh, just two little letters basically inside each other. And, and it was on the back of her neck. It looked like a tattoo to me. And I've showed it tonight in our presentation. And the, what was amazing about it, of course, I questioned her about that and, and uh, found that she had turned it in Federal Police of Brazil. The aliens had done it. And I said, why didn't you remove it? It looked like a tattoo to me. She said, that is after tattoo removal. It's not a tattoo. Uh, anyway, a lot of horrific stuff went on with her. One night, I uh, was um, working on my computer and went to bed. And next morning, my wife and I got up, and 
she was crying. And so what's wrong? And she says, she started crying about the creature that came in through the wall, the same one in Brazil. They found her again. And she's crying and going, I mean, it's just god-awful. And she's just absolutely uncontrollable. I mean, like I said, you know, you, you have to be there. really appreciate how ugly some of this stuff gets. I'm cleaning it up here, making it sound reasonable so it doesn't sound disgusting. But I'm telling you, I was there. I know. So anyway, um, she cries and cries and cries. And, and I said, well, you know, it's all over, though, you know. And she said, you know, you don't understand. She said, my events come in freeze. They'll be back tonight. And she said, it happens on the third month, on the third day, at 3 in the morning. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I said, well, tomorrow night I'll, I'll be up. Oh, thank you, thank you. She's so grateful. You know, hey, come to my house, you're going to pay. You've got to pay rent or you're going to pay up. Something's going to happen to you. So um, that night, about uh, 2 in the morning, I uh, got to thinking, you know, here is a wonderful chance for us to test to see if we could do something better. And I thought, I'm going to pray about this. And I did. I felt absolutely wonderful with the answer that I got. That I ought to just leave this in the Lord's hands. I just felt real comfortable with that. I, enough that I went to bed. I mean, here's my chance to face off with one of these cosmic skinheads. <laughs> and I'm turned it down. So on faith, I just left the situation. This is in my own home. Right. And I left the situation, went to bed. Very felt, surprising for what I Felt great about, about you. it. Just felt great about it. Felt I was doing the right thing. Went to bed next morning, get up. She's screaming and crying. and Oh, it was awful. It was terrible. It was worse than the day before. I said, well, what in the world have I done? <laughs> this is weird. What did I do wrong here? I thought this was good. I thought I thought... I, I really thought this was correct. I mean, it, this was this was the right thing to do. And she describes this creature trying to come in, and she picked up a piece of stove wood off our, our fireplace. She's going to hit him with it. Made him mad. What's funny about the alien, this is really weird, it also happened in the Barjina incident as well. They sound like a bunch of bees inside their head. They buzz really weird when they're angry or upset. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, I haven't heard that. So she's uh, she's swinging this stove wood at him, and it, it sets back outside. And all of a sudden, something she said, Daryl, she said something so horrific and so powerful, infinitely worse than him, comes through the wall. And she just describes just I mean, it's just horrible. And I thought. Man, I should have stayed up. Yeah. <laughs> so she for this show. And then she starts crying. I said, why are you crying now? What, you know, the end of the event's over here, you're telling me. And she says, she just, I mean, just was in tears, in joy. I said, she said, I'm happy. And I said, why? What What happened? This bad guy's there and you're happy? She says, yes. She said, this angel showed up. So magnificent, powerful. And this this horrible creature and the alien took off. They ran away as fast as they could get away. 
I'm so happy you see. So I told her about what I'd done, and she said, I wonder where you were at, why you didn't get up, you know, why you leave me alone with all this. So next I said, it happens three. She said, yes. I said, I will be up all, I said, I don't care what happens. Three o'clock in the morning, I will be there. And she was sleeping on a little pallet we made for her there in the living room. So I worked on my computer about 2.30. I went in, got my Japanese sword, sharpened it up, walked in and uh, sit down right next to her. Let's lean back against the chair. She's over there, not about four or five feet away on her little pallet, sound asleep. About 2.45, she sits up. I mean, tell you like she woke up and never batted a night, like she just was switched on. She sits up and looks at me and says, I know you're here. She was sound asleep. And I said, sleep. She lays back down and goes to sleep. Exactly at 3 o'clock in the morning, she wakes up again. I mean, wise, wide open. She didn't wake up. She was like she switched on. Looks at me and she said, they know you're here. And I said, you know, I'm glad they do. Because now I know, you know, they know that I know. And now I know that they know that I know that they know. Now that we all know what I know, and they know why I'm here, and the fact they're cowards and won't come through that wall, I said, I'm just delighted the fact they're not making it. I said, I wish they would. I said, but I'll tell you something. One of these days, I'm going to be on the other side of that wall. That's going to be the saddest day of his life. He's not going to be scaring anybody else after that. That'll just be too bad. I don't have any respect for anybody that does that kind of stuff to human beings or anyone else. Mm-hmm. If humans were doing that to aliens, I wouldn't like it. Right. Well, that's significant, I think. You know, maybe I'm the an optimist here, but I think that whole story, you know, is very significant. I it think is. That it's very, it's very mm-hmm. empowering. It's very yeah. positive and uplifting, and uh, it was enormously important for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, two final questions. Uh Thank you for that story. I love that story. That's gonna—I I know that's gonna be with me for a while. Um, UFOs. Getting back to UFOs. Two quick questions. More related to the website and some of the stuff I'm exploring. UFOs. Uh, do you have uh, an idea whether UFOs are solely alien or also unknowns that are built by humans as well? Uh, maybe you know super secret projects to. to um, to try to explore that area, are UFOs also human-made? And if so, what makes you believe that? Well, there are UFOs that are human-made. There's no question about it. There's evidence of it. Area 51 is proof of it. Anybody's got a half a brain already knows that. Mm-hmm. I have a friend that actually went out through, got through all the tech equipment they had up before they put a lot of it up years ago, back in 1995. And... Uh, he actually got through and actually watched them out in the bushes. He was up next to the field watching that craft take off and do the incredible things. Light on, off, all of it. I mean, amazing. And uh, there's no question in my mind that that thing's powered by us. I don't know what it is. But we've got some pretty bizarre stuff we're working on. You can't have a budget of hundreds of millions of dollars every year that the, even the Congress cannot look at nor inquire into and think for an instant that they're actually paving roads with all that money 
they don't pave roads that money. They spend it on other things. And they're not spending it on this or that or war or whatever. That All that money is already allocated anyway for other things. So this money is private and unto themselves in the intelligence community. The CIA, DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, I'm telling you that there's just enormous amounts of money. And there's just, what, what in the world is that money being spent on? I mean, it's not just keeping up. They just opened up a 200-square-mile area, just opened it up. I think it was the department. I think it's in the paper today. Uh, department, uh, the, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency opened up a 200 square mile of just like another Groom Lake. Wow. Just opened up. It's in the paper today. Just saw it this morning at breakfast. So there are things out there. Uh, as I told the Japanese, they paid me $2,000 for a, an interview, which is about a fourth this long. So I figured you owe me about ten grand. <laughs> oh, jeez. And they paid me $2,000 for this thing. They flew me out to Los Angeles, first class. And, and then they asked me a number of questions. I said, uh, you know, Mitachin, what do you do? You th what do you know about Area 51? And I said, absolutely nothing. At that point, I thought they probably felt they'd wasted their money. But I told them I've never been to Area 51. I didn't know much about it. And I said, the thing I can tell you about Area 51 is it's not nearly as important as is uh, White Sands Missile Range. What do you mean? I said, well, White Sands Missile Range, where I lived for 13 years, there's a big sign out there right at the very front. When you drive through there, it says, don't open, don't pull your camera out. You know what? They mean it. Mm -hmm. They'll arrest you and have you in front of a federal magistrate within 30 minutes. If And that's assuming you're just being stupid and doing what they told you not to. If they think you're spying, you're going to go to federal penitentiary. Now, you can go to Area 51, and there aren't any signs can't say you can't take any pictures at all. In fact, there are all kinds of pictures of Area 51. The Japanese took the best pictures there ever was, showed the doors on the side of the mountains out there. I mean, it's amazing the photos they got. Why don't you put them in jail for espionage? Because what you're seeing out in Area 51 is what you're supposed to see. And if people aren't aware, White Sands Missile Base is literally right across the street from Roswell. Essentially, well, Very it's, it's in New Mexico. Uh, Almogordo is in Holloman Air Force Base is next to it, and and I've lived out there for 13 years, and I'm telling you that. Um, and I told the Japanese, I said, you know, Area 52 is a lot more important than Area 51. 52 being White Sands. Well, they said, where Area 52? <laughs> I said, Area 52. I said, is located, of course, in Australia. Ah, right. I said, there is an interesting base there. Yeah. It's an American base. And it's in the middle of Australia. First of all, you've got to fly to Australia to get there. Yeah. I said, the laws there in Australia are a lot different than ours. Yeah. They'll put you in jail for 50 years if you go out there and carry a camera out there and act, do that kind of stuff out there. You've got to fly there and get there, and then you go to prison for doing it. Yeah, the MUFON director, uh, international director, John Schuster, cut a tour short in Australia. Uh, for that reason, he was getting messed with in Not a good idea scary ways. Their laws are not like ours. They, they, they'll mess with you there. And they, they, the, the National Security Agency and the CIA there don't have any laws like they do here. Mm -hmm. And the laws over there for intelligence, they ain't no law. You want to get messed with? You want to get hurt? You want to go to prison? Go ahead and go out to Pine Gap and find out what happens. These people will mess with you. One last question. I know it's late, but I got you. You're going back to Texas, so I got to get them in. Disclosure. Uh, 
First of all, I guess what would be your ideal way of disclosure to come back come out, and then the second part of the question being, how do you think it might actually come about, if you think it will come about? I don't think disclosure is going to happen the way the UFO community wants it to. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I wished I had a higher hope for that, but I just don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen for a number of reasons I don't want to get into here, right. because I don't want it to be political, and, uh, and I'm not picking on anybody. Mm -hmm. It's just that I'm just telling you that I used to be in the intelligence business, and you're being set up. I'm afraid you're of the same hurt. thing. I'm if you go in there and if you get a congressional meeting, you're going to be you're going to be shocked because there are people sitting in there in your group that have already been planted. You're not going to win. I already know that. So I don't think disclosure is going to happen like that anyway. And that's just my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. That and 50 cents to get you a bad cup of coffee. They won't even let you in the front door of Starbucks. So I think disclosure can happen in other ways. And I hate to say this this way, but you really need something more like a day the earth stood still type deal. <clears throat> I think if you could catch an alien as an example, a craft as an example, some way or another, I think you'd be a lot better off if you created your own Roswell. Well, maybe we should uh, get a whole host of uh, angels on our side before we attempt that. It works for me. If they, they're for hire, I'll be glad to hire them in a minute. You know? <laughs> right. Tell me where they're at, where they're working. We'll get them on board here. Well, and that's one of the big premises of why I started this group because I don't want—I don't think disclosure coming from uh, "quote unquote" officials is going to be helpful or healthy. I think if we talk amongst each other and kind of a public disclosure amongst each other is going to help us go a, a lot further. There is a enormous lack of leadership in the UFO community. Mm -hmm. There, there just is. Basically, we're all out here uh, firing our own guns, so to speak. Well, it's hard for us to agree on much. But it's, it's not just agreement. There, there, are, there are huge egos here at stake. Um, I don't mind following a, a good leader. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. The problem is um, the few good people that are trying to do the right thing, that are in big leadership positions, people are doing that, most of them are smart enough to realize, you know, you might as well stay out of it. You're going you're gonna to draw a lot of fire down on yourself. And a few people who've tried to tamper with that a little bit and try to really do stuff have been shot up pretty bad. I mean, it's bad. Uh, you 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 will pay the price because these egos. Uh, some of these people are so huge; they're just not gonna. It doesn't lend itself to that. So you're going to have to do something outside that, in my view, to come up with your own disclosure. And I think we all have our own personal disclosures we have to make. Some of us are still sitting in the closet hiding. Because we don't talk about our abductions, we don't talk about our real experiences. Because my God, you know, I mean, I'm not opening Pandora's box for myself. Yeah. So uh, I think the real people, the heroes, in my view, in all this business, are the abductees. I think in time you're going to see that they were telling the truth. It's provable, and there's legal and and government documents that prove this. Mm -hmm. Prove it. And in fact, these people, some of them, will be revered. In fact, as great heroes in American and, and other publics around uh, the world simply because they came forward at a time where it was it was the worst thing you could do was stand out in front of your friends and the rest of the world and say, I'm an abductee. Yep. And some of us uh, already believe they're heroes. And people like you being an abductee and coming out, not just uh, coming out, but also seeking for more answers and for more truth. And, you know, I think that's a good note to well, I think you have to be optimistically cautious. Mm -hmm. 
You can be an optimist. you just got to be cautious about it. Mm-hmm. That's it for this interview. Thank you very much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. Join us next week. We'll be back on the air with the news, and we're going to have Joe McMonagle. This is really exciting because he was the first military remote viewer, and uh, we'll ask him all about the remote viewing he did and how he learned it and you know what he saw because he does believe in extraterrestrials. And like many remote viewers, they have remote viewed UFOs and seen some very interesting things. So this is going to be a lot of fun. As always, visit openminds.tv for the latest news to get your news fixed that you missed this week. And we will talk to you next week. Have a great day off.